You're tuning into the Active Mom Podcast with physical therapist, Dr. Carrie Pagliano, a real mom's guide to all things postpartum return to workouts after baby. If you're a postpartum mom, coach, trainer, or physical therapist looking for answers on how to get back to running, CrossFit, yoga, Pilates, HIIT, you name it without the fear of pelvic floor issues or doing something wrong, this is the podcast for you. Let's start the show. All right. Welcome to the hundredth episode of the Active Mom Postpartum Podcast. Um, today's a little weird because it's just me. I In those hundred episodes, I have not done a solo episode once. It's all been guests. Um, so this, this is going to be new for me. Um, hopefully I'll, I'll figure out how to talk to myself and uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy it. Um, before we get started today, those of you that are watching on uh, YouTube, I wanted to give a little behind the scenes. Um, so this is um, my office where I film. So you can kind of get a sense of, you know, air conditioner, you know, treatment table, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I always kind of need to clear things out. So over my shoulder, I need to clear out the lube. Um, so how many podcasts do you listen to that they have to clear out the lube and the rubber gloves in the background? <laughs> so let me do that real quick. All right. Lube is cleared. All good to go. So yeah, the, the the podcast we've been doing this for, gosh, about two years now. Um, and first, before I even get started, um, this would not even happen without Lara Costa, who is, um, she's my podcast editor. She helps me out with a bunch of stuff. We've been working together for a couple of years. She is just the bomb and listens to every single word of these episodes. And so thank you, Laura, for being amazing at this and, and constantly listening to my voice. And then Maria Alcoke, who um, she does my website and some of my um, photography and things like that. And um, I've known Maria since before um, the podcast existed. We met through, you know, mom CrossFit kinds of things. Um, and she had the Engine Mom podcast. And so she was a huge inspiration. So this would not exist without these two amazing mothers. Um, so thank you to both of you. All right. So I thought I would start the 100th episode, um, which is kind of insane when you think about it, talking about kind of what my thoughts are on the current state of pelvic floor PT. Those of you that if this is your first episode and you're like, who is this chick? Um, I've been uh, PT, I think it'll be 25 years this year. And then I've been a pelvic floor PT, probably 24 of those. Um, it was not my plan to get into pelvic floor PT. I got into it because when I graduated in 1999, there were no jobs because of managed care. Thank you very much. Um, there were six of us in my class of 60 that had jobs. And my first uh, job was in home care in North and West Philadelphia. Um, come a long way since then. Um, I came to DC in um, 2001 to take a job to do women's health because there wasn't men's health at the time. Didn't realize that that would kind of become my life's work. I kind of took it to get out of upstate New York where I'm from. And um, had a great, amazing mentor, Karen Liberi, who tolerated like young 20-something me. Somehow, lo and behold, you know, fast forward 20 some odd years, um, we're sitting here and it's probably the coolest thing in PT that you can do because we literally have no limits. We deal with every system in the body. We deal with every type of human on the planet. And so in that respect, it's fun because you're learning something new every day. And because in research, uh, women have been historically left behind, not only as researchers, but to be included in research methodology and, and understanding of what makes us unique has been left behind. Um, we're learning new stuff every day. So I literally, if I have clients that um, I saw five years ago, two years ago, whatever, I love when they come in because I'm like, hey, when's the last time you were in? How many kids did I have? You know, that kind of thing. Um, and this is what we're doing now that's different. And so it's, it's definitely not at all boring. Um, you get to know a little bit about a lot of things and it's brought me into contact with some really cool people. So the state of pelvic floor physical therapy, as I see it, um, this is my opinion. I'm not representing anyone or anything. I think there's some good stuff. When I moved here in 01, there was maybe a dozen of us in the DC area. We all, we all knew each other. Um, I think we even had an in-person like journal club or something like that. Now I couldn't begin to tell you who all the people are who are going into pelvic floor PT in the DC 
Maryland, Virginia metro area. There's just so many. A lot of students are going straight into pelvic floor PT. I have thoughts about that. And I have never seen so many moms who are physical therapists not only look and turn to pelvic floor PT kind of as a career change within PT and embrace it, but also go out on their own and become private practitioners, um, mompreneurs, you know, that sort of thing. And really that's the root of our, our history. The Academy of Pelvic Health Physical Therapy is, uh, we are the same age. We are 47. Um, used to be known as, I think it was the OBGYN section, and then it was the women's health section. And then um, I joke that my third child was was getting the the name change to the Academy of Pelvic Health PT when I was um, vice president and president. We've come so far, but the, that organization started because you had moms who were PTs who were having problems and there was nobody to address it. And so, you know, just like moms do, nobody else is going to fix it. We'll, we'll fix it. So it's just so cool to see that aspect of our field grow. I think the other thing that's super cool, and this is, you know, the good and bad news about social media is so many more people are having these conversations and it's not just us. I think um, public for PTs have done a really good job of um, taking a potentially awkward subject and making it entertaining and making it approachable and making it a conversation um, worthy of sharing on social media, regardless of age and stage in life. <laughs> some people really take it to some, some, some extents that I probably, you know, a little out there, but hey, there's an audience for everybody. What I do appreciate, though, is it makes our profession approachable. Um, we have a tendency to think a lot of ourselves and get a little too medical and a little less approachable sometimes. And so I think um, us sharing information on social media has made our field much more approachable. And, you know, I think more people are aware of us, which is fantastic. Um, and I think also to the, the benefits, you know, the good news, I joked that the good news about the pandemic was two things. One, telehealth. And, you know, people realizing that they can get care virtually online, you know, sharing information, that sort of thing, and delivery margaritas. I don't know if the delivery margaritas are still happening, but um, I think people understanding that your access to care or your availability of information shouldn't be limited by your zip code. And that's one of the biggest social determinants of health is your zip code. And I grew up in a really rural area in upstate New York. The largest major hospital was, was 70 miles away. And so, you know, if basically my deal is like, if you've got internet, we can get you some information. And I have been, I think, very determined to make sure I share as much information as possible, understanding that not everybody has access. Um, here in DC, you can kind of find a, a specialist for anything. I understand that there's parts of the world, understanding that that's who we're speaking to, um, the Either you don't have access for a variety of resource reasons, or there aren't people there that, you know, standard of practice is a little bit different. And so um, it shouldn't necessarily matter where you are in the world. I think it's important to, to share updated information. And as a result of that, I think we have more educated consumers. We have more educated um, people to ask better questions of their providers, demand more, and that's where we're going to get change. Um, and I think that's across the board in, in perinatal health where, um, we're not just blindly accepting what somebody tells us because that happens to be the person who's in our geography or in our circles or that sort of thing. So empowering women to question, um, their providers, I think is freaking amazing. Um, and then be armed with that information to be able to advocate for themselves, um, so I think those are some of the good things. The other thing um, I do see, and I hope we see more of it, is more specialization within the specialty of pelvic health. So again, when I first started, it was women's health. That was that was it. Now, obviously, we've got men's, women's, trans health, kids, kind of all the things. But even within women's now, you know, pelvic pain and perinatal, and um, now there's a huge boom in around perimenopausal and menopausal health. I got kind of plunged into that this year with with my personal situation. It's so funny. I remember I took my women's health board certification. I can't tell you whatever the first year was, it might've been 
09 or something. I don't know. Anyway, point being, I remember there was a menopause section. I remember thinking it was so stupid because what could we possibly do as pelvic floor physical therapists to impact um, menopause? Because it was just a hormone thing. Hormones change, blah, blah, blah. That's it. Maybe you get frozen shoulder. Yeah. I was such an idiot back then. <laughs> There's so much we can do. And even just having those conversations and advocating um, for our clients to find providers. I had a, a colleague of mine who's a, um, a GYN and she reached back out to me. She's like, Hey, you know, I, I see you're posting about this more. Please let people know that I'm an option for them. So again, like, I, I think it's so important to, you know, even if I can't prescribe hormones to at least be like, Hey, these are the questions you need to be asking or other conversations that I'm having are, um, just having differential diagnosis conversations. I had one the other day where I kid you not, we were trying to differentially diagnose um, mom life, which is like, you know, crazy, especially the last five years um, with a couple of kids with perimenopause, with post viral complications after an illness. And then I dare say sometimes in the back of my head, I'm also thinking about energy deficiency um, in kind of low estrogen situations. So basically that can be postpartum that can also be perimenopause. So in that conversation, it's like, okay, how do we tease these things out? Because we're all gaslighting ourselves that, you know, we're tired, we're exhausted. Um, there's just a lot of things going on. A lot of kids are sick. You're sick all the time. Like th this is different than it was five years ago. How do we one, find somebody to listen to us, but two, how do we figure out who to talk to? And this particular person, we're like, all right, fatigue, brain fog, all of that, that could be all of these things except for energy deficiency. Okay. Well, maybe it could be, but generally that's probably not it. Okay. You're, you're having some insomnia, um, no period changes. Okay. That probably isn't Perry and you're having regular periods. Let's put that one on the shelf. Um, but with this particular person, we're literally like, okay, this started, we, we have a start point. And this was, you know, um, five weeks after a viral infection or just a illness of unspecified origin. We'll put it that way because nobody knows anymore. Um, and so in, in tachycardia at rest. And I was like, oh, that's post-viral. So if we, we find these other kind of little details and we can kind of narrow it down to what it is, but it's really easy these days to be like, I feel like shit. Um, is this just what being in my late thirties, early forties, late forties feels like? Um, so these are the conversations that we're having because in the seven minutes that you're sitting there with your primary care doctor, your OBGYN, like they're not sitting down walking through that stuff with you. And so I, I do think that, um, we're finding our space and our places for a subspecialty within pelvic floor PT. I do know a lot of PTs that, you know, go and work in large health systems or work for larger corporate practices or things like that. You kind of just get what comes to the door and, and you have your basic, you know, level one, level two, and you know, it is what it is, but then there's those of us that are, you know, subspecializing, you know, in working with weightlifters or ultra runners or, you know, athletes or perimenopause or, you know, those sorts of things, or, you know, pelvic pain after kids, like endometriosis, bladder pain, like those sorts of things. I love that there's more subspecialty um, that's defining itself. And, and again, maybe that's happening because there are, you know, more, um, private practices popping up and, and more kind of niches and that sort of thing. But I love that. I want to see more of it. All right. Bad things in the state of pelvic floor PT. It's kind of the pendulum is like, we didn't have a lot of people in this space and now it's like super cool. And again, it always kind of cracks me up that students in PT programs are like, yeah, I want to do pelvic floor PT. I was like, I don't ever remember feeling that way. And I don't know, maybe we just made it look cool. I don't know. Or maybe it's, you know, it's just so much more than it was when we were looking at it. Cause you know, when I was, you know, first starting, basically it's like, you've got Kegels, you've got some stretches, I've got biofeedback, that's kind of it. So it was kind of, I hated it at first, I'll be honest with you, until I did the mashup with orthopedics, it was really boring to me. So yeah, I almost didn't stick with it because <laughs> I thought it was stupid. <laughs> they would literally be like, all right, put your finger for a pelvic pain, high tone. Uh, we recognize that as high tone now. Be like, all right, put your finger there on a tender point, leave it there for 90 seconds and then poke it again and see if it feels better. And of course it wouldn't because that's not how it works. But I was like, um, this is freaking boring. And all we were taught to do is internal as well. There was not this, oh, look at external stuff and look at internal. It was, and then everything was stretching, no strengthening. Like it was boring and I hated it. 
And it wasn't until I started doing more orthopedics um, in conjunction and then realized, wow, okay, there's some mashups to be happening. And I had a great sports orthopedia. I worked with um, Scott Epsley, stupid smart, and he believed in me and was like, hey, we think a lot alike. And I was like, okay, let's mash this. Let's mash this shit up. And I haven't looked back since. So the good news is, yes, we have more people excited about being in pelvic floor PT. Um, the bad news is they go straight there and don't have a background in other things. Like I credit so much of how I look at pelvic floor issues now because I have a background in orthopedics because, you know, I work with high level athletes. Um, you know, I, I, some of my other um, favorite pelvic PTs like Sarah Tanzer, she has a background in neuro, like having a background in other specialties allows us to look at this through a, a different lens and consider other things. And I do think that it's to your detriment if you go straight into pelvic floor PT and think that just a level one or a level two class is like, yeah, this is all it is. Um, because there's so much integration um, that has to occur in understanding and, and kind of just pulling it together big picture. So I hope that, you know, that gets a little bit better. I think there's also a lot of non-PTs trying to jump into the space. Like, let's just be honest, you know, somebody with a, a big social media following is, you know, they get pregnant and then all of a sudden, before you know it, they're, you know, selling a, a pregnancy program. Um, my pet peeve is when you're selling that pregnancy program before you've had the kid, because like, come on, like there's, there's no proof of validity there. Like, we don't know how this is all going to turn out. Um, we're selling the postpartum program before your postpartum, like again, my, my pet peeves there or people just selling pregnancy and postpartum programs because it's cool. And I see that starting to happen in perimenopause and menopause as well. Um, and I am bound and determined that, um, this time the women that went through the dumpster fire, that was pregnancy and postpartum, kind of my, my vintage and before that we don't have the same dumpster fire that we have to fight again, um, and perimenopause and menopause. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of people that are not experienced, don't know what the hell they're talking about putting stuff out. I also think it's really hard. Um, again, good, but good news, bad news about social media. Like you're, you're putting out marketing hooks. Um, so understanding that I have a small business, I understand marketing. Like when you're putting up a post, when you're putting up a reel, our job is to get your, your, your attention. And that might be to say something off the wall that isn't exactly medically true. Um, but does that matter? Because I got your attention. And if I want you to buy something, or I want you to, you know, come get something for me, I need your attention first. And so I think, you know, consumers understanding the difference between good medical advice um, and people that have good vetted evidence informed information uh, versus people with a good marketing hook. And the young ones are savvy now, like the ones with the big old, you know, accounts and the followers and that sort of thing, like they're savvy on the hook. That doesn't necessarily mean or not mean that that's the best source of information. So I think getting um, the understanding of consumers that, that, that that's the case. Other things that I think are not great, also related to the social media aspect is um, there's a ton of free information out there. Everybody's got a, you know, a free handout or this or that. And so with that, you have a lot of people that kind of suffer what I call the, the DIY fallout. Yeah, the answer is out there. Absolutely. But do you know how to put it together? Like, do you know what pieces of free information you would have to put together in what order in your particular scenario to get the outcome that you're looking for in the time that you would prefer? And the answer is no. And that's where I think um, respecting that, you know, this is a, a field with expertise. You know, I put free information out to get people thinking to help them advocate. I always will help people find resources close to them as much as I can or online or things like that. If it was so easy to DIY, I wouldn't have a job for 25 years. And I think that's, oh, I had somebody reach out the other day and was basically, and it was a PT trying to understand kind of pelvic floor PT. And it, it, it kind of, it pissed me off because he, he oversimplified it. And he was like, oh, well, basically the research, you guys stick your fingers in there and you see a squeeze, relax, endurance, quick flicks, da, da, da. And then that's it. Right. And he's like, and then he mentioned, you know, kind of, um, couldn't we just replace all that with all these devices that are out there, especially because we don't want to increase abuse and, you know, Larry Nasser. And I was like, okay, first of all, I've been at this 25 years. Um, 
please, you know, don't, <laughs> you barely scrape the surface. Um, trauma-informed care, you know, Larry Nasser was not doing pelvic floor PT. Um, the fallout from Larry Nasser, I mean, like we could go down some serious rabbit holes, but there's so much that goes into, um, I think, a, a, a good pelvic floor assessment that goes so far beyond. And I, I think that's the biggest change in what I've learned in, in 25 years is that I am far more than my examining finger. The longer I've been at this, the less internal I do, because the more I actually spend on subjective and trying to understand and listen, because your patient has the answer. It's up to you to figure out what it is and pull together a framework and a hypothesis to be like, hey, this is what I think is going on. This is how I can test it. And this is how we're going to move this on forward. And there's so many systems involved that are just literally beyond somebody squeezing around my finger. It's not even funny. And I literally have to have a whole episode to talk about it. But I, it was funny. I was literally like violently, passionately, like, you don't know what the frick you're talking about. <laughs> and I say that not because this is just my profession. Um, and I've never been a Kool-Aid person. So it, it's not like, oh yeah, you're rah-rah PT. Like, there's more people rah-rah than me, but because I've had my own pelvic floor issues and I have, I have had a birth that didn't go the way I thought it would. And I literally had to sit there and decide if everything that I had been taught was bullshit or not. And if it was, you know, that's it, guess what? You're not going to run, you're not gonna do anything. And, and I literally had to turn on what I thought my job was and challenge it in order to make sure that I could continue to be the active person that I envisioned myself to be as a mom. And I think when you go through shit like that and you have a coming to Jesus about yourself and your future and how you envision yourself, and it just so happens to mash up with your career, you tend to be a little passionate about it. Um, so I get a little feisty when I have people that don't understand that. And again, not not to put down people that are in pelvic PT and haven't gone through those things. I hope that you don't have to, but um, there's something to be said for um, being in a space and experiencing that and being able to um, empathize with your clients in a similar way to be like, you know, I didn't understand CrossFit until I became, you know, a CrossFitter. Um, so not exactly the same as childbirth, but you know, you get where I'm going with that. So um, anyway, um, that's kind of the, the DIY fallout failure situation where, um, I do think it's so important that to respect that so much time and effort and understanding and, um, research and trying to understand and collaborate with other areas has gone into a lot of the work that we do and we might make it look simple, but there's a shitload of thought behind that. Um, Last thing, um, and I think it's just overarching, not specific to, to pelvic floor PT, but probably just to maternal um, uh, perinatal health, is it freaking sucks that we're sitting here in 2024 and maternal mortality is still an issue. Like, what the hell? Like, I, I don't even understand that. I read something the other day. I think it was in Texas. Uh, a mom gave birth, went home. Um, she died. I think her baby died of dehydration and her two kids were found like dehydrated. I was like, this is 2024 and this stuff is still happening. So that's why I think the more touch points that people have beyond their primary, you know, care provider, you know, beyond their GYN, that's where I think we can play a role is if, you know, we can keep contact with the people that need us the most. Um, and we can advocate for them because this shit shouldn't, be happening. Um, it's kind of ridiculous. So, all right. So that's the state of pelvic floor PT. Biggest impact of the last like five years. Um, I think that um, there's a couple things that really stick out for me. Um, we're, what are we, four years out from um, the beginning of the pandemic. Um, I think it was Friday, March 13th. 2020. Um, it was, I think Friday the 13th. And I think that was the last day my kids went to school for like, I don't know, 300 some odd days. That first four to six months, I think was impactful to me um, in a bunch of ways. One that I can do my job this way. Um, I can do it with my hands tied behind my back and still be able to impact people. And I think the evidence for that was in those first months, 
Um, first, I did just check-ins to make sure my patients were okay. And of course, everybody's symptoms, whether it was leakage, prolapse, pain, whatever, everybody was off the hook because we were all in fight or flight, including myself. Just starting with really basic things like being aware of your breath, being aware of um, tension in your body and not trying to fix it or not trying to go to some place of perfection. Um, noticing it, trying to make a little change, let it go a little bit and then move on. Um, and it's it's basically noting as a mindfulness technique. I've, I've studied mindfulness for probably about 15 years um, before I had kids. And um, it was just something that was very simple, actionable and added up. Um, and it was something that we could do in that time. And I could not believe how many clients that I had that just tried that one thing and then came back and said, oh my gosh, you know what? I'm holding my breath all the time. Or, you know, what? I, I, I just let go a little bit and I'm feeling so much better. And granted, you know, no one should have to go through, you know, months like that and experience that in order to, to understand this concept. But it, it, it couldn't have been more crystal clear that um, I can give somebody the most perfect, you know, treatment exercise program that I've created in the world. But if we don't look at the context that someone's in, if we don't consider the whole person, if we don't consider physiological implications of life, um, we are missing the boat. Um, and I hate um, or don't care for, thank you, however you want to put that, um, when PTs make clients or patients feel guilty because they didn't get to their exercises or they keep stacking the list. I, I always refer to the CVS length receipt list of um, uh, exercises. Like that sucks. And then moms just give themselves a guilt trip. And um, my mantra is how little do you need to do so no one dies? Like what can we do to get the most impact so people notice change, which will give us a buy-in which will then get you to your goal the fastest. Um, and little things like that, um, that are doable and actionable, and you notice a difference, and that's why you're going to stick with it, because you notice a difference. Um, that's where we need to have um, more emphasis in our care. Um, and you don't have to spend years on it, um, like, but that's someplace that that has not failed me. Um, in the last several years. And I don't know that just being aware of breath and tension and context, and also don't start with the hardest context first. Like don't try and, you know, work on your anxiety and your breathing strategies and tension when you're on the phone with your, your parents talking about the holidays and kids and, you know, or whatever, whatever the hard part is, you know, the, like the, um, the work conversation or whatever, like, don't do that. And then the other thing I love talking about there is, um, and and if you haven't listened to it, we did um, our season one finale with James Clear, Atomic Habits. I love habit stacking and be like, all right, my favorite one recently is um, women who are on Zoom calls all day still is they need that external cue to remind them to be, to like pay attention to their breath and tension. I was like, you know, at the beginning of every meeting, Zoom call, people are like, oh, hey, everybody come on in. Let's just wait a few minutes for everybody to hop on the call. Um, my husband's in consulting, so I hear that at home all the time. And I'm like, hey, that's a great cue to remind you to take a breath. <laughs> so that one and getting in your car and turning on the key, those are my faves. Um, so uh, understanding of kind of the big impact of those sorts of things. And I think that also um, keyed into understanding how much more high tone or overactivity that we're actually dealing with. Um, so back when I first started, um, it was like, okay, anything related to pregnancy, postpartum, it's underactivity, you're doing kegels. If it's pain, we need to do relaxation. Now I think there's so much that we're understanding. Um, I think the last five to eight years, really wrapping our head around stress incontinence and, um, high tone. And again, the, the research is, is, is coming. And I think, you know, is this high tone? Like what, what the heck are we actually feeling here? What is, was, and I, I think we're still working on that explanation of what it is and why, um, but I think the awareness that high tone can play a role in pelvic organ prolapse symptoms. Um, and I think where that came together for me is for years having clients that um, you examine them in every single position and you barely see any sign of prolapse, but they feel it all the time. And, you know, they're dismissed by their providers. 
but then you've got that patient that comes in. The only reason why they're there is because they stuff something in all the time, but they don't have any symptoms. Like how can these two realities exist? And I think having a background in pelvic pain and chronic pelvic pain and understanding kind of um, hypersensitivity and awareness and those sorts of things and overlaying that with high tone, I think there is definitely um, more that we need to understand about why those clients that really don't look like they have any appreciable um, pelvic organ prolapse are having these sensations um, of a tampon falling out or heaviness or pressure or things like that. So I think even just grasping that concept and accepting it as a possibility has been a big change in the last few years. And I'm really looking forward to kind of seeing where that goes. Um, this idea that um, I saw a post yesterday, somebody's like, oh, I don't have to have uh, pelvic floor surgery um, because my you know, prolapse grade changed from a two to a one and now I don't feel anything. I'm like, mm, I don't know that it actually changed stages. But I do think you were able to change um, the sensitivity of whatever's going on there and build strength and that kind of stuff, too. So I, I, I do think there's a lot of semantics that we still need to unpack. But I do believe that we can um, continue to reduce um, likelihood of, you know, having to go for um, surgery for prolapse or, or symptoms or things like that. I think we can make a much bigger impact on symptoms than we might've previously thought in a conservative way. So yeah, prolapse management. I think that that's been such a, a big difference. And then the last one, the biggest game changer for me just in this last year, um, huge thank you to Celeste Goodson. She goes by Recore Fitness. She put out a paper, I think it was January, it was either December 22 or, or January 23, looking at um, uh, running drills, and putting them in order from least vertical impact force to most vertical impact force. And what caught me right off the top was two things. One is that those of us with a history of, of, of track and field and running and, you know, we had, you know, even CrossFit, like a lot of the stupid drills, you know, high knees and kick butts and karaoke and that kind of stuff are really on the higher end of vertical impact force. And so the basic things that even if you don't have that background, you're starting really high. And understanding that what if we, you know, even with the return to run readiness screen, hopping in place, single leg, double leg, that, that's definitely a little bit higher up in this range that, that Celeste Group was able to, to demonstrate. It's like, what if we back up the truck a little bit and start much smaller with lower vertical impact force? Will that make a difference? And I have had the most fun this year playing with that. Um and playing with, okay, we'll try this, but try it a little bit slower, um, you know, just to a couple hops and then we'll build it up to time limits or, um, and just kind of playing with that progression a little bit more. And um, we've made some huge gains with that. And I do think, and again, kind of with one foot in the perimenopause space where there's a lot of voices talking about, hey, we need to get hidden. We need to be doing plyometrics. Like, I think those are conversations we need to be having much sooner. Um, again, I could have a whole podcast about this, but I, I think we need to um, make sure that our uh, postpartum moms, those exercise programs, it needs to be more than core. It needs to be more than glutes. Um, we need to start adding impact in because I don't know a single mom who isn't going to at some point in time run across a playground to catch a, a, a runaway kid and not freak out if they have leakage or things like that. So everybody's a runner in my book, um, especially if you have little ones. Um, so for me, that's probably the biggest um, impact in the last uh, five years and especially the last year. All right. Um, top five podcast guests. So I, I kind of cheated on this because it was like four and then like a my fifth one was like a whole bunch of people. <laughs> All right. So I think purely from a straightforward, no stuff kind of. Uh, standpoint, like PT standpoint, my two favorite, sorry, I'm, I'm cheating on myself here. Alison Grimaldi, she was our, our top episode of um, season two. She's a hip therapist in um, hip physio in, in Australia. I've known about Alison um, long, long, long time ago. Like I said, my colleague, uh, Scott Epsley, um, he had introduced me to her concepts and stuff and, and she's just freaking amazing. So smart. And I love it when people who know really good ortho are willing to do the mashup with the pelvic floor and they see that connection. And, um, that I think that's far more common now than it was definitely 10 years ago, definitely 15 years ago. So it's really cool that that's just kind of normal now. 
the other person I'm thinking of, uh, Rich Willie, he was in our top five for um, season one. He's running PT out of Montana, stupid smart, and really just laid down some nice basic um, running myths that I think that stuff gets locked into running land and really needs to be extrapolated over into pelvic floor PT or, or PTs that do work with, with runners in the pelvic floor, because, um, and again, this is where I, I hope there's more specialization is, um, if you are working with runners and you don't know anything about running, you need to find a PT that does running, or you need to learn about it yourself. Um, and so it was just nice for him to, um, kind of bust some some of those myths that I think that get carried through for people who don't necessarily know any better. So those are my two favorite, like um, just straightforward PT guests. James Clear was awesome. Um, he was our our season finale for season one. James wrote the book Atomic Habits, and um, Chafali Christopher knew him, connected me to him. Um, when I read his book, I read it as a parenting book. I did not read it as a business book. I'm like, oh my God, you know, habit stacking. That's totally like mom 101. Um, and so he wrote it before he had kids. And it was such a fun conversation because he had just had a second kid um, when we did the interview. And then I, I was like, dude, you need to go back and write the the parent version. It's really not going to be that much different. But if you market it as a parent version, you're going to make a lot of money. But I just love that, you know, you know, a couple of years later, since he's written it, like it's still a top seller. I think people really do connect with that. And I, I do think um, as PTs, um, and this is a lesson I didn't learn in PT school. This is a lesson I learned as a mom is we won't get anywhere unless we're able to be consistent. And again, I, I got enough times that I guilt myself during the day. I don't need my PT doing it to me, but if we can help people figure out how to integrate things into their day so that they can be consistent. That makes it easier for us to see if something's going to be helpful or not. And people feel better about themselves when they can be consistent. They're able to progress, but they, you can't just be like, all right, do this and not be like, all right, I know you have uh, a bunch of kids, a job and all this other stuff. Where the hell are you going to put that? And the conversation doesn't have to be long, but you got to help them out. Um, but that, again, I learned that from being a mom. I didn't learn that from being a PT, but I do think that's one of the things that um, that perspective can be incredibly helpful. Um, some other interviews I love. Sarah Tanza, um, she goes by Public Potential. Um, just love her. Um, we have never, so many of my guests we've never met in in person. And um, Sarah, uh, she's in California. She's um, a Public Floor PT, neuro background, um, but also works with River Runners. Um, she's working with Steph Bruce. Um, hopefully we're going to get them, uh, coming on this year. Uh, just stupid smart. And just somebody I would just love to hang out with because her brain is kind of like mine where we're like, well, what about this? And what about this? And, um, we just had so much fun on that podcast and it was kind of in the middle of, of, of lockdown too. And so it was just cool to talk to somebody, um, and just get into like professional fun stuff. Um, and then another one was our, our Swim Moms podcast um, in season two. Um, I'm lucky enough in my life as a mom, my uh, both my kids do summer swim, which is a whole culture. And um, there's a, a handful of moms that um, our daughters swim together. And um, our kids are in the, the same kind of age group. And um, we all find a way to get our workouts in. And it was just fun to bring a couple of them on and be like, Hey, you know, you weren't necessarily an exerciser before. This is how you're finding it now. And you know, there's, there's ways to do this. So that was a, a great conversation. And then um, some of the guests has been on a couple of times. Um, this is my cheater one because it's really not one person. It's like four um, or just people I love to talk to. And we can just shoot the shit anytime um, and talk about anything. And they're just really smart people and just good people people I DM a lot. <laughs> my favorite friends are people that don't live near me. I can't be the only one. Some of my OGs, Brianna Battles, Lisa Ryan, Celeste Goodson, um, Christina Previtt, um, just really, really smart people that um, I respect a lot um, and have been just putting good stuff out into the universe. And, um, you know, it, it, it's just, it's a, always fun and a privilege and a pleasure to be able to have conversations with people that I, I know have done the work to vet information and have gone through the shit themselves and taken that and turned it around to try and help other people. So those are my favorite guests. I know it wasn't exactly five, but you know, there you go. Um, I think the next thing I had here is I reached out 
And, um, you know, I said, Hey, what questions do you guys have? Can I ever get back to heavy Olympic lifts after stage one, two prolapse diagnosis? Oh my God, hundred percent. Yes. Um, and I think the first step is one knowing that that's a possibility. Um, and because I think there's still so much conflicting information. It depends on where you are in the world, the information and what people are telling you. And then it also, and again, having gone through this and having my own issues with prolapse, like you really start to question, especially if you're feeling it all the time, especially if it's early on. So the advice I have for that is the earlier you can get with somebody who is um, lifting informed and pelvic floor informed and the mashup of those two is best, that's um, probably best case scenario because you do have to go back. And this is my whole thing. It's like, why are you having those symptoms? Um, you know, is it, you know, high tone? Is it lack of pressure control? Is it, you know, how you're lifting? Like, do we just need to build endurance? So the, like, there's a million and one reasons you and I can have the exact same symptoms, but we can have completely different reasons why we got there. Um, so my, you know, some of my favorite, uh, voices in lifting with prolapse, um, I just mentioned Christina, um, Previt. um, she also has the, um, the handle barbell mamas, um, lots of good information there. Um, she talks a lot about that. I talk quite a bit as well, but again, it's, it's finding somebody who's going to help you navigate that piece of it. Um, I think Brie Battles talks a lot about it as well. Um, you know, just there's ways to navigate these things in the barbell space. Um, so the short answer is yes. Um, and the next step is let's find voices that um, you can start to kind of listen to and resonate with to figure out how to best to go forward and finding resources to help you so that you're not going to DIY this one alone and go back to what I mentioned earlier, where you have the DIY failure fallout. So I don't want people to try and navigate this because it can get really complex and there can be a lot of steps to it when it's done intentionally and correctly. Um, but it also can be incredibly easy for those of us to help you navigate that we've done this a million times before. It's not our, not our first rodeo. So next question. Okay. This one's, I, I kind of put the, like the, the patient questions first and then I do the other stuff later. Um, current evidence exercising in supine in pregnancy. Um, this one, I, you know, I don't know that there is, I'll be honest with you. Um, I will give you my two cents. Um, obviously don't take this as medical information advice or, you know, specific to you entertainment purposes only. That's the, you know, the usual disclaimer. Um, having been pregnant three times, having woken up flat on my back, um, at 41 and a half weeks with both kids happy as a clam because I could breathe. Um, if you're, if it's, something's going on, most of the time you're going to feel it. If you're exercising on your back, you're not going to want to be there. You're going to be in sh- and, and something's wrong. Something's going to feel off. You're not going to feel lightheaded. You're going to be, the idea is that the, the weight of the baby would compress a major blood vessel. Um, you're not going to feel good in that position. And that's where just pop it in an incline. And if you're that worried about it, like if the stress of the whole, oh my God, I'm flat on my back. If that's really driving you crazy, just get on an incline and don't worry about it. Um, but it, it's it's right up there with like stupid, you know, old wives tales that we continue to, to tell people. Like I, I had a friend in PT school that she was Greek and she's like, you can't tell a Greek woman that she can't have feta. Um, like don't eat nasty deli meat or nasty sushi anyway definitely don't eat it in pregnancy. Like don't do stupid things. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the short answer to that one is who's going to do the study that says, if I lay on my back, it's going to hurt my baby. Like no one's ever going to do that study. Um, so there's not going to be a paper on that anytime soon. And I don't know that it's a great question anyway, because, um, you know, it, it's going to be dependent on so many different variables and we do such a shitty job at actually getting pregnancy related research anyway. Um, cause most of it has to be, you know, retrospective, but shorter answer is if you're that freaked out, get on an incline, but really like, if you're not feeling great, change position. Um, that's my, my two cents. How did you get into running and pelvic floor PT running? I've been running. Uh, if you ask my mom, I've probably been running since I was a kid. Um, the way the story is told is this has always something I've enjoyed. Apparently I used to run to impress my grandparents. Um, I was not fast. (laughs) This is a good story. 
Um, I was so freaking slow in like, you know, seventh and eighth grade. My poor parents, they would like come to my track meets and my cross country meets. And I'm just kind of like plodding along with a big old smile on my face and these big Coke bottle glasses and braces. And um, they're probably just like, oh my God, like this poor girl is like dead last. Um, and I was, don't, don't get me wrong. And then um, I think it was my last cross country meet in eighth grade. It was a home meet. I think we did a little over a mile or something like that. For some reason I decided, oh, well, let me see if I can do this. And I led like most of the race. And then I think I finished second um, at the end. I was like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe there's something here. And I was very, very fortunate. I had some great cross-country coaches. Um, and uh, my first high school, um, my second high school, I transferred to in 10th grade. Um, my coach was uh, my cross-country coach and my Nordic ski coach. I will, I can't ever tell him, um, how much working with him meant to me. He was so freaking forward thinking, like we were doing plyometrics in 1993. Um, we were doing visualization of races on the floor of libraries in 1992, like just things that like, that's a long time ago in case those of you weren't doing the math. Um, so just super, super lucky to be surrounded with some awesome coaches that were really forward thinking and, and always supportive of, the groups, um, of, of girls that they were entrusted with. Um, both my track coaches, um, both schools were football coaches. So I think they were just, you know, picking up a check why you would put pubescent teenage girls with a, a high school football coach. I will never know. Um, but anyway, um, always adored, uh, running. Um, I got to college and stopped for a little bit and definitely gained the freshman 15. Um, because I didn't have to be at practice anymore. And I think that's really where, you know, maybe it was like end of first year, beginning of second year, I started to go run. Um, and you have to be very conscious about when you run and where you run in West Philadelphia. Um, I went to, oh God, at, at the time it was Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Science, renamed University of Sciences in Philadelphia and recently purchased by um, St. Joe's. I don't know. They, they keep changing the name. So anyway, I, <laughs> West Philadelphia. Um, and so I, that's kind of where I found it again and I loved it. And I, you know, that was kind of my stress relief and would do some five K's and things like that. And, um, did my first marathon in, um, Oh four and then had hip FAI surgery a couple years later. And that really kind of slowed things down. And then a couple years later after that got pregnant, with um my oldest and you know there's two and a half years um between our kids and then i would really say i have been able to really get back into it the last several years because you know the kid schedule allows um you know I, nobody's up at zero dark 30 and requires me to be there with them in the morning i can get out and about and come back from a run before they are up um been able to do some five K's, um, with the kids and that kind of stuff. So for me, it's been a lifelong thing. Um, I think really mashing it up with running, I'm sorry, mashing up, um, running with my work as a pelvic floor PT. I don't, I don't know why I didn't do it sooner. Um, but I think, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to live in Arlington County, Virginia. We are like second year running, you know, most active city in the country. Everybody runs here we got a lot of trails. Um, and so I think there's, there's just been a need. Um, and then also, you know, I started doing CrossFit, um, when my daughter was three, so that was 2016. Um, that was a game changer for me too, because adding load to my workouts allowed me to run with less pain. And I think that's also when I was able to start to, to run more and just open up a whole new world of, Hey, we need to cross train. Um, to be able to have, you know, less injury and better performance and my hip just plain felt better. And so that opening up that whole world of, um, CrossFit and hit and kind of weight training and stuff was, was very impactful for me. Um, and then recently these last couple of years working with a, a run coach has been really fun too, to kind of understand the training aspect of stuff. And now as we look forward into perimenopause and menopause, the nice thing is like all the recommendations are like, Hey, you should be doing hit you should be doing um, strength training and plyometrics. I'm like, check, check, check. And so for once I did the the work first um, and didn't have to do the catch up. So um, 
and again, it's super cool to be able to take what I do for fun. And that's like my job. So work, like it doesn't stop for me because that's also my hobby, um, which I guess that's the dream, right? Um, but no, that was not the plan. <laughs> that was definitely not the plan. Different question altogether. Biggest social media pet peeve. I think my biggest social media pet peeve, um, and some of you will not find this surprising, is um, trying to engage with another account and doing it in a respectful way and they dismiss you or shut you down or I'm right um, or they won't even engage in that and then they just block you (laughs) Um, or they double down on whatever they said that was bullshit anyway. Um, So my whole thing is I'm happy to be wrong. I'm happy to have a conversation. I'm happy to try and understand things from your perspective. Um, I understand that in a post, um, nuances can be missed. I get that. Um, I think posts are opportunities to have bigger conversations and establish relationships and, um, kind of think about things in a different way and see things from other people's point of views. But when you try and engage with an account to have those conversations and they're more concerned about their brand or doubling down um, on what is incorrect and not being willing to talk about nuances and well, what about this and that sort of thing and understanding that not everybody's going to respond to the same advice. Like that's, that's a pet peeve of mine. I, I, I have a theory. I've shared this a lot. Like a third of the people, it doesn't matter what you have them do. They're going to be fine. Um, a third of the people will respond well to basic instruction. That's, I think, the theory of group instruction. They're going to they're gonna be fine. And then you're going to have a third of people that really do need that, like, specific training. And I think that that's where um, public floor PTs, that's where we really shine. And, you know, even great pregnancy, postpartum, you know, athleticism coaches and that sort of thing. Um, so I don't feel like I need to have the the corner market on public floor PT. Like, we all can own that. And some people don't feel that way. Like I, I, I get shit sometimes because, um, you know, a lot of people are like everybody should see a pelvic floor PT. I'm like, mm, I disagree as a pelvic floor PT. Um, but I do think we need to have more people in that space that can speak to um, pelvic floor issues in an informed way. Um, because again, I grew up in a rural area. We didn't have people. I, I, I think it was Haley Shevner years ago. She's like, well, what about people that can't, either they can't come see you or they've been to several, several public floor PCs and they're not better. Does that mean that they're screwed for life? And I'm like, "Mm, valid point. Um, so I think being, having access and information from an informed provider and also knowing where, um, public floor specialists can play a, a huge role, um, I think is incredibly important. So, um, I have no issues with people sharing information about the pelvic floor who are not pelvic floor PTs. I do have issues with people um, who claim to be experts because they took a weekend course or they're pregnant or just had a baby and they have a huge following and all of a sudden they know all the the things. Um, So yeah, those are just a few. We'll, We'll end that question there so we don't get too in the weeds. Where do you see the role of pelvic floor PT going? I kind of talked about that a little bit earlier. Like it kind of the sky's the limit on this one. Again, I, I feel like there's opportunities to go into subspecialties even more. Um, I think that's going to require a lot more education of the public. Um, that's where, you know, when I'm talking to clients, I'm like, hey, you know what, I, I, I can't come see you all the time, but I'd, I'd like to come. And I was like, you know what, start with your basic pelvic floor PT and then come to me for the specific run stuff that they don't know. Like that's, that's where I think kind of, you know, understanding, you know, if, if you're, if your insurance benefits are like, Hey, it's going to be like nothing out of pocket to go here, go here, start the basics, but also know that they're going to get you the basics. They're not going to get you the sport specific stuff. That's going to get you to that 50 miler lake free or something along those lines. Um, I hope to see more of that. I think we've seen a lot in the the barbell space and CrossFit. It, it cracks me up because like in 2013, like I think you'd be shot dead in a CrossFit box if people knew you were a PT. Like my first year in the gym that I, I used to go to, 
I did not tell a single person for a year that I was a PT. I'm like, nope, mm -mm, I'm just going to put my head down and learn. Um, and of course, now you've got PTs in, in CrossFit gyms and stuff all the time. So I, I think it's super funny. Um, so I, I hope to see more of that. Um, I hope to see more people um, embracing telehealth. And um, I hope to see <laughs> to see a natural licensure. What I mean by that is um, the way licenses work for, for PTs, and this is just a, a bigger thing, is we're licensed by state. There's different requirements by state. We take a national exam, but then there's you know different state requirements. And so there is the National PT Licensure Compact. So for example, West Virginia, I'm licensed in West Virginia. Um, rather than having to go, jump through a bunch of hoops, I think because Virginia is part of the compact, um, I can apply West Virginia. I pay a fee, do any extra legal stuff. So I know that there are laws and, and boom, we're good to go. Um, I think, uh, we need to get more states involved in that compact so that, you know, if I have a client in California who wants to work with me, I can easily get licensed in California or Oregon, or I'm, I'm just pulling that random. I, I can't remember if they're in the compact or not, but like to make it easier for, um, people not to be limited by their geography for the PTs that they see. So I, I hope um, we see more of that. Um, if you're interested in, in participating in that more contact your state uh, or, or national American physical therapy association. And again, I hope I see more collaboration with other fields. Um, I feel like there's been such a great relationship between coaches and trainers, um, in the perinatal space. I hope that will continue to improve in other spaces as well. You know, working with GYNs and, and, and hormones with um, perimenopause and menopause. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. It's kind of really going that direction now. So just more collaboration in, in other spaces. All right, next one. What has made the biggest impact in postpartum journey? A couple of things. The first one would be, so I, I started running after my first, maybe a little bit of leakage. We had a miscarriage in between, had my daughter wasn't able to do a VBAC, had another C-section, um, was up to 200 pounds, and then slowly started to get back to, to running. Um, I think the biggest changes for me were to recognize that there was going to be a path forward. And I don't know that at the time I knew what that would look like. And the steps that I took, like starting lifting and CrossFit, I think has been life-altering for me, adding resistance training, not only for perinatal stuff, but I, I, we didn't, we still didn't know that much about hip rehab when I had my FAI surgery almost 17 years ago. So I was still kind of navigating that. And again, now being in this space and being educated, getting moms active sooner, I'm really jealous that we did, you know, I didn't get a chance to do that. If I had to do it over again, I think I totally would have. Um, but I, I feel like for me, got there a little late, but I got there. And then all that I've learned there is really gonna, um, I think, keep me ahead in this, you know, perimenopausal transition. Um, Cause I'm already doing the, the weightlifting and that kind of stuff. I think other things in my postpartum journey are just the connectedness that comes with others who have experienced similar things as you being able to speak to other moms that maybe had a plan and it didn't work out. And then you're questioning your identity. Um, I think that was something that was really hard for me because, you know, here I was this public floor PT. Um, and that's why I didn't talk about stuff for a long time. And it really was a conscious decision for me to um, go on social media and be like, yeah, you know what? I have navigated leakage. I have navigated prolapse, diastasis, um, you know, pelvic girdle pain. Um, because ideally, wouldn't you think that if you were the expert, you could prevent all those things and must be by process of logic or whatever, that because you had those things, you weren't able to prevent it. That makes you a shitty therapist. Like that was literally in my head. Um, and I think the realization that that wasn't true, um, and understanding that there was so much that we have left to understand and learn. And I've done that from kind of an experiential level, um, because I've done that and had to problem solve that for myself. And I've been at those points where you question your capacity, um, to get back or to, to do something that you want to do. Like, um, I think when you go through that process of being like, all right, am I willing to do what this takes? And I don't know if that was ever a question because I didn't know what it was going to take. You know, it was just constantly, well, what, what about this? And what about this? And I, I, I got to be able to get better. Um, there, there must be more. 
And I don't know when that question will, I, I'll stop asking that question because, you know, I'm sitting here at 47 and running faster, running longer, running with less pain, lifting heavier, lifting better, performing better. Like I know there's going to be an end point to it, but until that happens, like it's such a beautiful freaking thing when you've been through all that to be like, I feel good in my body today. I'm taking a deep breath and it feels good. And my hip feels great. My back feels great. Or I just lifted heavy AF this morning and that's freaking awesome. Like those sorts of things. So um, I don't know when my, my, my time will be up and, and I start going downhill, but um, I'm sure as heck going to be happy for, for what I have and the, the ride that I'm on and, and share the journey along the way. So I think that outlook um, conscious or not um, is probably in the rear view. One of the, the most important things um, that there, I don't, Amongst the hopelessness, there was hope. <laughs> so, all right. Um, last one that I have here, which is great because we're wrapping up around an hour here. Um, this one, I don't talk about this much. Um, balanced mom life and a biz owner. Um, it is not balanced, not even remotely close. Um, I think it's easier now because I've accepted some degree of the chaos. Um, I have a, a dear friend, Cecily Stefano, who says you're juggling, you know, two types of balls. You have the glass ones and the rubber ones, and you can drop the rubber ones, but not the glass ones. And I think, um, having a young family, um, when I started my business, um, and, and just for perspective, the day I took, um, the oath of office for presidency for the Academy of Public Health. I'd been on the board for, I think, four years before that. Two days later, I opened my practice with a full caseload. So I, I don't, I go bigger, I go home. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not afraid to do the work. I think as a business owner, for me to be able to do the work the way that I wanted to with such a motivation um, and to work with people that I, I truly resonate with um, and feel like I can help. And and I, I think that was such and and again, like I'm really lucky that a lot, a good majority of my patients are moms and they have kids. And um, that was a conscious choice that, yeah, I can do all these different things in pelvic health, but I, I choose to work with the people that are going to understand. Um, and yeah, the conversations that we have can be like, oh my God, how did you navigate this phase of your life? And, um, you know, having to survive the first couple years of um, the pandemic when everything was kind of shut down. Um, that was a challenge as well. But again, having the flexibility so that I could navigate the kids and they were still young, they were like six and eight. Um, you know, the first couple years of school like that, that was not easy. Um, I navigated as well. My husband would kill me if I didn't say thank you. Um, we have figured out a work partnership and we get it done. Um, but it's also with the understanding of, I carry a lot of the weight as far as the kids stuff is concerned. Um, I turn into a chauffeur about three 30. Um, and that goes until about eight, pretty much every night of the week. Um, I am the chief, uh, project manager, schedule keeper for the house and know where everybody's supposed to be. And when, um, that's also my skill set, not his <laughs> love you, honey. But there's a lot of stuff that he carries too. And again, it's a lot easier now because, you know, the kids can be home alone for a little bit and they can wipe their butts and feed themselves and turn on their iPads and that kind of stuff. But the with the flexibility comes, you know, the question of the hustle. And I, I have the big conversations with, you know, colleagues where my generation was the one that, you know, we were sold Cheryl Sandberg and lean into the, lean into it and you can do anything. And that's, you know, what we were, taught as girls growing up. Oh, you can do anything. No, <laughs> you can, but do you choose to? <laughs> so I think for me, it's also been a balance of, and, and again, it's not a balance. It's, it's sometimes my family and, you know, stuff's going on takes priority. Sometimes my kids and advocating for them and the stuff that they need takes priority. And fortunately my business is such that, you know, it's, it, it, it can go on autopilot for a little while sometimes. And then sometimes my, my business takes you know, priority and I need to do a little bit more there. So it's, it's kind of understanding that it's never, someone's actively trying to throw a grenade at you at all times. And so it's your ability to adjust and be flexible and 
that was not me as a new mom. I was not flexible at all. It was like, whatever you resist persists. If I couldn't, you know, sit down for 25 minutes to do a straight yoga workout, it wasn't going to happen. And so that's where I do think that, um, what I've learned as a mom has helped in business because inevitably there's going to be a phone call from school to pick up some kid, or I'm going to forget something. And, you know, you, you try and put as, as many safeguards in to, to make sure that the day goes well, but sometimes it doesn't and you roll with it. And as long as everybody's healthy, um, and safe and happy as much as possible, um, then it's a win. So, um, no, there is no balance. <laughs> even when your kids get older, because again, you got emotions and puberty and um, schoolwork and whatever the heck math they're teaching in, you know, middle school. So anyway, again, that could be a whole other podcast. I guess, you know, that wraps up the hundredth episode. We might be doing more of these solo episodes. So if you have thoughts on things that you would like to hear me talk more about. We hit a lot of things in this episode. So things you want me to dive a little bit deeper on, happy to do that. Apparently I can talk to myself for an hour. So that's good. (laughs) Good news, bad news. But it has been an absolute freaking pleasure, honor, privilege, and just a gift to be able to do this podcast and to talk to so many people and um, hear their stories and share their stories and hopefully make an impact on someone somewhere on this planet that they feel like they're not alone or they have hope or there's somebody that had a similar experience to them or, you know, they learned something or motivated them to, to, to try something new or to learn something new because that's what it's all about. And one of these days, um, you know, I'm not going to be doing this for work anymore. And when you look back and say, you know, what, what did I, what did I give back in return? Hopefully, hopefully this is, this is just one of those things. So, um, if you've listened this long, thank you. If you have questions, you can always uh, hop in DM me, uh, at Carrie Pagliano on Instagram. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to those of you who have listened. Um, I think by the time this runs, we'll be over 40,000 downloads, um, which is pretty freaking cool. Thank you to all of our guests. Thank you to those who gave suggestions of guests and um, those guests to come. Um, thank you. It is um, just an absolute honor. Um, and we'll see you next time, maybe with a guest, maybe not. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, leave us a five-star review on iTunes and tell a friend to do the same. Are you a postpartum mom or postpartum pro wanting to know more about getting back to running after baby? Check out all my free goodies on carriepagliano.com. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Carrie Pagliano and her guests to the show. The content should not be taken as medical advice and is for entertainment purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions.